Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. The coronavirus pandemic is reaching all corners of the country and will likely end up reaching all corners of the globe. But it will not do so equally. Those on society's margins and lower economic rungs will bear a much greater burden of the toll taken by COVID-19. That's the urgent message Dr. Sandro Galea wants to send, along with recommendations for what we can do to lessen that health divide. Dr. Galea is a physician, epidemiologist, and dean of the Boston University School of Public Health, and he joins us on this week's podcast. Dr. Galea, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you for having me, Michael. So you have co-authored a, a piece that just appeared in, uh, in the BMJ, a, a journal formal, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, uh, titled COVID-19, The Painful Price of Ignoring Health Inequities. What are the, the health inequities that you are most concerned about, and, and what is the price of ignoring them during this uh, coronavirus uh, crisis? Well, to answer that, you need to start with the health inequities that we've had in this country long before coronavirus. We um, have a country that is uh, driven by dramatic differences in health. For example, we have about a 10-year difference in life expectancy in uh, counties across the country. Those differences in health are overlaid on fundamental differences in the conditions that generate health. So, for example, we know that 50% of the population has had really relatively little health gain in the past several decades. And that is because that segment of the population has also had relatively little economic gain, little gain in housing, little gain in access to uh, healthy food. So... We have a country that is best described as having health haves and health have-nots. And the health have-nots, which are, depending on how you count, the poorest 50% or the poorest 80% of the population, are going to also suffer most of the consequences of this of the coronavirus and the approaches mm-hmm. to mitigate it. So you're dealing with populations who are unstably housed, who have uh, insecure uh, access to food, who are single parents with disability, elderly uh, populations of color. And and I think the mistake that we make is that we think, well, this is a small group and it's a small group and it's regrettable that there are challenges, but it's their problem, not our problem. Well, them is us. I mean, we are dealing with a majority of the population. And my concern, and I think the concern of um, those of us who wrote this, uh, the editorial you referenced, the concern of the task force, in Massachusetts that I have co-chaired is that we cannot have a conversation about coronavirus without talking about those who are bearing most of the brunt of its consequences. And if, if I were to tell you that, well, this affects half to two-thirds of the population, I would say to us, well, is half or two-thirds of our conversation about this? And clearly it's not. I mean, this topic is only barely being scratched to surface in uh, our national conversation on coronavirus. So we have been trying to push against that, to change that, to make sure that we realize that the virus itself may disproportionately affect marginalized populations with already an underlying health burden. And certainly the social and economic consequences of the virus and of the responses to the virus are going to fall heavily on vulnerable groups. And it really, I guess, you know, in a, in a way that, I don't know, perhaps we haven't seen in uh, 
I don't know, in decades or, or maybe ever is, is, uh, the virus is, uh, I don't know how you describe it. It's sort of exposing, I guess, as you would say, these inequities that, that have been there and, and present, but it's, uh, sort of going to magnify them in a certain way, right? Exactly. I think, I think it's going to heighten them. I think that's, that's the concern that uh, these um, the health inequities are underlying. They've been there for decades. We know that. And a moment like this stands the risk of even deepening them. Let, let's take something concrete. Let's talk about the economic shutdown that we're going through right now. Right. You know, half, half the American population has essentially no savings at all. Now, that same half of the population has a much, much greater chance of being employed in a job with no paid sick leave. So essentially half the population has no savings, is now going to lose a job and not have paid sick leave. So when you think of it that way, it's not hard to realize that half the population, again, half the population, that's a lot of people, that's the majority of Americans, is going to be immensely hard hit by this economic shutdown. And of course, economics are inextricable from health. Poverty. Let's say no, we know that. I mean, this is this is not news. This has uh, been right. uh, we've we've talked about. I've talked about this on your podcast before. Right, and this is a huge focus of of a lot of your a lot of the work you you've done. Right. Correct. Correct. And but it also seems to me that uh, it, it, on the one hand there are these incredible inequities and this divide in the in how the uh, uh, the virus will will be affecting populations, but there's also this. Uh, uh, again, very unusual moment in which even the people in the sort of more privileged positions, you know, can't escape that. And and in some ways, I wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk about the degree to which, um, you know, folks without access to the safety net, people without paid leave who are living, who can't afford to be, you know, off work for any time, and the people who uh, work in, in some of the sectors that uh, that are still going, um, you know, we now have the risk of people who are not well going into work because of these economic uh, uh, pressures, and and ultimately, you know, that uh, that that exposes you know people more broadly potentially to the virus. Yeah, I I have been trying to make the case for years that um, there is no such thing as health for some. That health ultimately is a shared good, and that we need to treat health as a public good. And if a group, any group, is suffering poor health is going to affect all of us. Now, that's a hard argument to make because, you know, once your listeners presumably are a higher socioeconomic group uh, a group of listeners and they say, well, I care about people not doing well and I do my best to help. But ultimately, even if it's regrettable that there are health left behind, it's their problem. It's the problem of a small group. Right. But the point and is, isn't it true that often it doesn't uh, really touch them or in, in a very immediate way? Often it doesn't, but it does much more than we think. And I think the epidemic is an obvious case of that. I mean, everybody who understands the basics, the fundamentals of infectious disease will recognize that having half the population as a reservoir of infectious disease means it's going to affect all of us. But, you know, I'll use other examples. We know that our social networks and our cultural norms affect how we behave and what we eat. We know that cultural pressures determine the extent to which the food we buy is healthy or not. We know that your risk of dying in a car accident is affected not so much by your driving as much as by the driving of others. So this has always been there. It's always been there in front of our eyes. And this pandemic is inevitably elevating it and and putting it in front of center in our consciousness. So I suppose, you know, it's hard to think of silver linings when you're going through a pandemic, but but, but, but just to, to think together, 
this is elevating issues that we should just not forget, that we should not forget. Once we get over this pandemic, and by the grace of God, we will, uh, we will, we need to keep thinking about these issues and say, what are the choices we want to make to create a healthier world so that more of us are healthy? So when the next event happens, which by the way, it will, when the next event happens, we are ready and we are ready together so that it doesn't affect any of us as much as it is this time. Right. And so just talk a little bit about um, in, in the near term what we might do. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the state task force. So for the benefit of, of our listeners, I'll just give the quick background that you uh, have served as the co-chair of something that's called the Emergency Task Force on Coronavirus and Equity uh, which uh, has been assembled and, and is coordinated and, and supported by more than 80 organizations across the state. And on Friday, the, uh, the task force unveiled uh, a, a report and sort of made it a, a, a call for four immediate steps at yes. the state level that, that could be done to try to mitigate the effects of it. I mean, which include, I'll just quickly reel them off, safe access for immigrants to coronavirus testing and treatment, the creation of safe quarantine sites for homeless people and others without, uh, you know, housing that's adequate for isolation, uh, 15 days of additional paid sick time for all workers, and a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures or termination of public benefits. Um, so can you talk a little about that? And, and, and I mean, these are kind of, uh, I, I don't know if you'd call them, again, sort of emergency stopgap measures, things that, that, that you and the task force are appealing to state leaders to, to, to implement, uh, you know, immediately. Yeah. And I think, I think you captured that very well, Michael. And one of the challenges with uh, talking about health inequities and health gaps that are overlaid on socioeconomic gaps is that I think, you know, the the well-intentioned person says, I get that. I would like to fix that, but it is such a big challenge. How do we even begin to address it? So what the task force tried to do is to say, okay, let us think about what is practically feasible that can be done right now and that intersects with the universe of what should be done. So there was a lot of conversation in the task force about there are many, many things that can be done. But the goal was to say, what can be done? What can be done by the governor, attorney general, and legislature if we set our mind to it? And these four emerged as four things that really can be done, that if we set our mind to it as a commonwealth, we can do these things and do them quickly. That doesn't mean that there is not a whole host of other things that can be done. But we try to focus on practical recommendations that could buffer some of the impact of what's going on right now for vulnerable populations. Right. And um, uh, I mean, in looking at sort of how some of this plays out, I was struck by uh, a, a colleague who was mentioning just this morning uh, one, one sort of, again, concrete example is that uh, asthma rates, for example, are not uh, evenly distributed at all across the population. And so if that's, that underlying condition is obviously not a good one to have uh, if one contracts this virus. And I, and I think uh, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, uh, actually has the unenviable distinction of having one of the highest rates of asthma of any place in the U.S., uh, you know, sort of with something in the neighborhood of 20% of the population affected. In, in truth, it's, uh, it's, it's actually hard to think of health indicators that are not socially patterned, Michael. It's, uh, you mentioned asthma, heart disease is socially patterned, the burden of heart disease much greater in communities of, communities of color than it is in uh, white communities. Cancer is socially patterned, economically patterned, heart disease, lung disease, stroke, 
these are all deeply socially patterned. In fact, I often tell my students in introductory epidemiology classes that the oldest, best established epidemiologic relation in health over centuries is the fact that the more money, status, and power you have, the healthier you're going to be. So this is, in some respects, nothing new. I mean, this is something we've known for uh, centuries. One of my favorite examples of this is um, when you look at uh, cemeteries from the from the sort of Middle Ages, and uh, you um, you look at uh, the, the way the cemeteries were, were designed is uh, the more money you had, you had a larger tombstone, which I guess isn't that different today. And uh, you can go back to these graveyards. These are 500, 600 years old. And you can look at the larger tombstones, and you look at how long the people lived. And you see that uh, people in the graves with the larger tombstones lived longer than people with the graves with the smaller tombstones. And simply because 500, 600 years ago, those with access to resources, status, power, and money were healthier. So what we're seeing is the same pattern today. Now you can say, well, Sandro, this is a, a condition of human nature and we're never going to fix it. And I would challenge that. I'd say we can be better than that. And if, uh, if it takes us a pandemic to see it, then hopefully that sharpens our thinking. You know, I want us all to be healthy. And I think we can achieve that because we are making choices as a society that leave some people behind. And we should not do that. And is there anything that, that sort of compares uh, to what we're going through now that, 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 that you look to that helps, uh, helps us understand it better and, and helps us understand the, this issue of inequities? You mean in terms of historical examples, or um, what do you mean? Right, that's what I was. That's yeah, what I was well, thinking. I, I, um, I suppose I'm not sure I'm fully answer, answering it, but let me try. The um, I think this is um, sort of a once in a generation event, meaning that to me it feels like um, it is shaking up how we think about the world the same way as 9/11 did 20 years ago, and I think 9/11 changed how we thought about the world the way HIV did 20 years before then. You know, these events come. And we do know they come, and they come with some regularity. And what, what we don't know is what they're going to be and when they're going to, going to come. And I think they force us to look at the world differently. And uh, to take 9-11 as an example, 9-11 shook the country out of a certain way of seeing its role in the world, its uh, role with respect to security, its role with respect to neighbors. And it changed everything in some respects. I mean, I think it, it will be hard to imagine that this pandemic will not do the same thing. And I suppose I'm interested in making sure that insofar as we are going to go through a period of introspection and change together, and we will and we should, we do that with an eye towards saying, how do we create a healthier world for all? And do you think we're, we're up to that? I know that um, uh, and, and you know, in the conversation you had uh, here on the podcast just almost exactly a year ago with, uh, with John McDonough from the Harvard School of Public Health and Paul Haddis from Tufts uh, School of Medicine, um, you know, y- you talked about some of this divide in, in health status, uh, although, you know, as you said earlier, there's kind of this long arc of it throughout history in which, you know, wealth and privilege have been linked to better health. But you talked uh, at that time about a divide that's really grown over uh, the last, you know, short term, the last three or four decades. And so it feels like uh, your message was that uh, what was that we've been actually moving, you know, since, say, the 1980s in, in exactly the wrong direction. So um, so the challenge now is not so much to, uh, uh, you know, sort of 
continue the progress, but it's almost a kind of reverse course. I mean, we, we have had, uh, you know, some things like the Affordable Care Act and, and measures that seem to be sort of pushing in that direction of closing divides, but, but they've been, uh, they've been playing out against this backdrop of, of, of kind of a worsening uh, of the inequities. Yes, you know, no, you're right. I, I, I do think that, uh, and I have said, and I've written, and I, I said it on uh, your uh, podcast, that uh, we have taken steps back in the past 40 years. And, and we've had um, you know, simple data points, like until this year, we had had a three-year, year-on-year drop in life expectancy in this country. And the, the last time that we had that as a country was the 1918 flu pandemic. Now, I've been using that example. I didn't, of course, anticipate that we're going to be going through another pandemic simply months Right, and I looked and you actually mentioned this a year ago on the podcast. Did I mention that? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I didn't remember I did, but it's a, it was on my mind. You did indeed, and yeah. I, I just reviewed that, and uh, my I, I sort of was startled and stopped when I read that. Yeah, it was on, it's been on my mind, and, uh, and uh, we, we have been making decisions to disinvest from the structures that keep us healthy. Now, let's, let's talk about what that means. I, I think there are two sets of thoughts on that. Number one, perhaps the most immediate and top of our minds is we have disinvested in public health. What's that mean? We have underfunded the CDC, we have underfunded state and municipal health departments, we have underfunded the science that can inform how we deal with improving our health. For example, in the moment in time on this pandemic, a large part of our challenge in our collective conversation has been knowing what physical distancing efforts are the most efficient and effective uh, with the lowest cost. And we just do not know that and just because we do not have the science. So bucket A is we've been under-investing in the practical tools of practice and scholarship in public health. Now, bucket B is we have been under-investing in the forces that really generate health. Our, our mis- the mistake that we make in conversation is we think health is about medicine. Now, we should make no mistake about it. Medicine matters, right? If I get coronavirus or you get coronavirus and we need respiratory help. We want a good medicine. But what actually keeps us healthy is not medicine. It is safe houses, it's good schools, it's livable wages, it's gender equity, it's clean air, it's drinkable water, it's fair economies. Those are the forces that allow us to stay healthy. And we have systematically made choices to chip away at those forces. And, um, and you know, we've talked about here mainly this issue about inequities, but you are... Um... A physician, you've worked, I know, on, on the front lines of some health crises in other parts of the world, and you're trained as an epidemiologist to study uh, uh, study these very uh, phenomena. What what do you, I guess, fear most about the days ahead and looking sort of more broadly, not just at the inequities, but uh, uh, I know it's, it's hard for anyone to say with certainty, you know, how bad things will get, but what's your... Uh, how do you how do you think about it and frame what we could be in for? Well, I think from an overall picture, we are uh, progressing along the epidemic curve that we have seen other countries progress on, and um, it's very difficult to say uh, what we are going to see. But one hopes that in the next few weeks, with the um, physical distancing measures that have been put in, and uh, with vigilance to put in other measures as needed, we will see a cresting of the um, epidemic wave and we start to see recovery. That's what you would hope to see in the coming weeks. The, um, but what we're also going to see in coming weeks is that the 
economic consequences of our physical distancing measures are going to start playing out. The, uh, you already saw, I think today or yesterday, the enormous jump in um, unemployment applications. And uh, we are going to see unemployment and the loss of a whole swath of, of jobs, which is going to result in a large segment of the population being unemployed or underemployed. And that is hard to recover from. We are also going to see a um, graduates entering the job market at a different point in their earning and their career potential, which has implications over decades. So these are these are real implications. I mean, this is a hard time. And our focus as a society, to my mind, should be, number one, mitigating the physical threat of the virus. Number one, there's no question about that. That's what we should be doing. But as we're doing that, number two, we should be doing that with a clear eye to buffering that effect, to buffering that effect so that it is... So we protect the people who most need protecting. And do these, are these um, when you talk about the sort of immediate uh, task, are things like the sh- uh, you know shelter-in-place orders uh, or that we're seeing in California and uh, and other places? Are, are, do you think that's uh, those, think, um, those are getting ahead of things in a smart way, and are those likely to sort of become you know the the what we see more broadly? It's hard to say whether um, whether um, particular jurisdictions need shelter in place. Uh, to be honest, I don't think it uh, it uh, benefits us to be second guessing particular jurisdictions. I think uh, one has to hope that uh, leaders in particular states or cities are using the best available data they have uh, in, at their fingertips, consulting with people and making the smartest choice for that particular place. Um, but the, the principle, the fundamental principle, is one of physical distancing to mitigate viral spread and. Uh, there are different approaches to that in different contexts, depending on how much movement there is, how many people there are, the density of people, and all of that. So uh, I, these measures will make a difference. Absolutely, they will make a difference. And uh, we need to navigate our way through them to balance using physical distancing with softening the blow of that physical distancing on those who are going to suffer their consequences. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, looking for any silver lining here, and there certainly is this, sometimes there's a thought that, that a crisis does also present uh, at times an opportunity. Uh, so if that were the case, what would be, what would be a sign or signs that we're seizing on, on the, on the opportunity, if you want to call it that, that this presents Mm. in a, in a in a more sustained way, you know, for the long term. Obviously, we were, we're adopting these very immediate steps to, to try to head things off. Well, I'll take it as a sign that we are by virtue of the fact we're having this conversation. I, um, I, I, I firmly believe that the more conversations we have, the um, more we surface issues that matter. So I'm grateful to you for having the conversation. I'm grateful to you for keeping these ideas front and center, even at a time when understandably, we are all focused on the immediate physical threat. And as I said, that should be our first concern, but that should be our first concern coupled with what that means for us, not just today, but also tomorrow. And what would that mean? What would you look for over the next, say, half year or so? What would be signs that, you know, that we're not simply going to, uh, you know, kind of in that, in this kind of short attention span uh, way of modern life, kind of just sort of, you know, file this away and, and move on, what would, what would be some real indications that we're taking real lessons from this? 
how about we call it a sign if uh, you and I have this conversation again six months from now, hopefully after the pandemic has long been resolved, and to make sure that we continue this topic and keep it in front of our consciousness. All right. Well, that's it's a deal. Uh, it's a deal. All right, Dr. Sandro Galea from the Boston University School of Public Health. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Michael. And be well. Be be healthy. Stay 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 well and safe. And thanks again to everyone for listening. This has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. We'll see you next time.